0: By Pearson Harnish but a huge third down you got the game on side yep. on the move down to the 24yard line of Saint Francis who's winning he, he won't the say the score laid up and waited for the past short drive who's winning close towards the right corner complete to van who steps across the plane. Uh, say the damn score <laughs> you're listening to the original say the damn score podcast part of the say the damn score podcast Network Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 90 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. Only 10 away from the big number 100, and no, I have not thought about what I'm going to do when I hit that milestone. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve inside the sportscasting business. Please follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. And also, if you would rate or review the show on iTunes, I would certainly appreciate it. It's a big favor for the show and it doesn't take a whole lot of effort on your part. So just take a minute and give it a couple stars. Also, if you like the show, retweets and shares are greatly appreciated and help the show grow. I'm recording this open on May 8th, and this is the evening after I just got done calling my first ever lacrosse game. So, it's always interesting to broadcast a new sport, because having a little bit of awareness and knowledge of the game is always crucial to putting together a good broadcast. And I grew up in Nebraska where they just didn't have lacrosse at that time. Maybe they do now. They did not then. And I just wasn't exposed to it until probably until I started seeing it on ESPN in college. And I always thought it looked like a lot of fun to play, but never really got into uh, any opportunities to broadcast. So what I did and kind of my normal go-to when I'm covering a new sport is to either go to the library or to Amazon and either check out or buy the title of the book for dummies. In this case, lacrosse for dummies. It really helps to to just go through the back index and just read all of the terminology that they have, uh, read the basics of the game. I didn't have an analyst, and I really tried to avoid doing much analysis just because I can't fake it. I didn't really know what was going on, but I just got done calling my first game, and I think it mostly went well. I would certainly do a few things different. The one thing that I definitely would do different is that I did not memorize the referee signs and I was assuming that there would be uh, announcements saying what the penalties were and who they were on and that just did not happen at this high school lacrosse game so I had to kind of uh, hope that you could hear some fan talking about it outside of the window And a lot of times I just didn't know, so I'd say it's a penalty on this team, but I was not able to give any further information past that, which is problematic in a broadcast. So definitely would learn that the next time that I get a chance to do that, if there is a next time to call lacrosse. Of course, this is Minnesota in May, so it was 40 degrees and pouring rain. And on a grass field, it was super muddy. It was a sloppy, kind of slugfest type game that finished five to three, which, if you follow lacrosse at all, is very low scoring. But at least it was entertaining. It was competitive. And part of why I got into broadcasting is because it was an outlet to channel my competitiveness and and my love for taking on a challenge, and this was a new challenge, and again, you know what, it's the first time that I did it. I think it was passable. I'm equally sure that there's plenty of problems, and I'll have it critiqued, and I'll be better for the next time, but that was my first lacrosse experience. But anyway, right now we are joined by Jason Horowitz. He is Uh, The Westwood One studio host. He is a CBS Sports Network play-by-play broadcaster. He has a talk show on Sirius XM. He works for Big Ten Network. Probably puts on tights and fights crime at night. Uh, Pretty much does it all. Jason, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, the tights
1: thing uh, I have done before. Uh, It was Halloween, circa 2007. Uh, but it was really just to win a bet, not to, uh, not to stop any crime. So, but I have done that yet.
0: Well, we can't, uh, move on from that without a little further explanation. What kind of tights and what situation were you wearing tights on the street at night?
1: No, no, not so much on the street. Um, my, uh, my wife got me that I, that I couldn't wear them. And, uh, and I did, I have very skinny legs and I was able to fit into her tights, Uh, it was, was a very uh <laughs> I'm not sure if it's humbling or if it's uh if it's embarrassing or you know the Halloween time. So uh it was it was well whatever it was, it was definitely done.
0: I think <laughs> the answer to the question of whether it was humbling or whether it was embarrassing depends on what you won. Uh
1: I won <laughs> I won not having to pay for dinner. Uh, we were not very good at that point. So it was actually not a great payoff.
0: <laughs> uh, that that further depends on where you went to dinner.
1: Just a normal 23-year-old out of the town. <laughs> we went to Peter's at the time. It was a, a restaurant down the street from where we were living here in New York City. So, uh, yeah,
0: you know what? In hindsight, totally worth it. 100% <laughs> worth it. One of the reasons I had i'm having you on this show is because when i was working at the final four bringing you uh cables and coffee and whatever um you were there as the studio host and our knowing each other got off to a perfect start when i was trolling you on twitter um about what you wanted in your coffee as a host so what is your reaction when somebody is uh Obviously joking, but talking junk to you on Twitter a few days before you're going to spend uh, three days in a studio with them.
1: You know, the, the funny thing is, uh, our interns with Westwood One, and you I realize you're not an intern, you're getting paid there. Our interns at Westwood One, one of the first things they learn is that uh, they don't bring me anything. Uh, I, I, in fact, am responsible for getting coffee for them uh, with the Dunkin' Donuts around the street from our studio, uh, it, it to, to the detriment once in a while of the fact that if I have had one intern in my ten years as a studio host for Westwood grab a something. It just happened to be during the tournament where uh, I don't have enough time to go outside and grab coffee. But usually I am the coffee getter uh, for our for our folks at Westwood One. I uh, <laughs> in reference to Twitter, um, I tend to engage, but I uh, I'm not clever enough to fight back on the trolling world of Twitter because um, while, while I get it and understand it, I just, uh, it, my responses just aren't clever enough. And you never, you, you know, it's just like a text message, right? You can't get context. You can't get, you can't get tone. Um, you can't get any of that stuff. So it's uh, uh, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where I will have conversations with people, including uh, some some trolling, but uh, not not
0: very in depth. It's certainly not a long one. That was definitely my first thought after I hit send. Was I hope he understands the context and that this is a joke and that I'm not actually talking junk about the uh, studio host, which obviously yeah. turned out to be true. But I digress.
1: No, but you know what? Though you never can tell, right? I mean, so most people most people don't live their lives on Twitter,
0: right? Um,
1: that's that's one of the first things that. That, and and as a radio show host and not so much with Westwood but with our show on Sirius XM we talk about that all the time um you get so lost at particularly in our industry in just assuming that the world is on Twitter everybody is on Twitter um you can get everybody's thoughts and reactions based on Twitter responses and that's that's not really true um i don't know what the number of actual people percentage wise who are on Twitter but um you know, you can be doing something off of a show based off of X amount of people feel this way. And the reality is most people are just going through their day, working their tails off, spending time with their family, doing what they have to do to get through their day. And they don't have time to spend their whole day on Twitter. Whereas in our world, in our realm, in our industry, part of our job is being on Twitter the whole time. So I think sometimes we get, we get a little diluted with, with how, people actually think versus what we think that people actually think and um you know reactions and responses can can feel I think a little self uh important compared to what they actually are
0: so let's go back down memory lane and kind of your first prominent role in the sportscasting business was actually when you were on the reality show dream job and you talked pretty in depth about that on Joel Godet's play-by-play cast, listen to that if you want to hear that story. But what I wanted to kind of piggyback off of, what did that do to open doors for you? Because you were still a student when you were on that show. Yeah. Uh, what effect did that have on uh, the availability of jobs once you graduated?
1: A lot. Um, and, and it's it's not a direct correlation of, hey, you were a dream job. Here, that gets get you on this job it was a couple of different things. One, my tape was better. I didn't win. Um, but when I came back to Syracuse, I had some, I just had better tape. I had, I had better, uh, a better reel with better, uh, reports and some, some, uh, some anchoring that that I could put on there that a, it just looked better, right? Because it was done. It was a professional show uh, that ESPN was putting on their air. And so I had that type of stuff to put on my reel. And what I used it for um, was the Hearst Foundation Awards, uh, an accredited university, uh, all the accredited sports universities, journalists, universities, journalism universities, excuse me, have this competition at the end of the year. And students of all the accredited journalism major uh, in the country can apply for it. And they take five students out of all the applications and you submit Your video reports. I don't know what it is now, but this is what it was in 2005. And and I I got accepted. Uh, It was a full competition. It was a full, you know, submit this. Now we need you to do two reports. Now we need three. And and I was able to use um, a couple of things that I did on Dream Job in my application process. And so I got accepted. And when it was out there, I met a gentleman by the name of Larry Kramer who had created Market Watch. And Larry knew. CBS was looking to do some stuff on the internet and looking to have to hire a young person who was going to be the the face of CBS Sports and uh, CBS Sports Digital. Um, their 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 launching of their digital service, which at the time was just uh, video CBS Sports line, and they hired me for it. Uh, and a lot of that was because of the connection I had made with Larry, and a lot of that's because of uh, the fact that I was out there to begin with with the Hearst Foundation. And, and uh, you know, so A to B and B to C, and all of a sudden, I'm 22 years old. I'm living in New York City. I'm hired to be the face of CBS Sportsline, and my first day on the job, I'm sitting in Sean McManus's office, the president of CBS Sports, because they're making this announcement to reporters all across the country that they're going to be the first network in the country to do video exclusively for the internet, the first sports network, anyway. And uh, it was kind of a surreal process, but but dream job certainly had a big part of that.
0: Being in Market number one for your very first job as a 22-year-old. Obviously, you are probably much better than the average 22-year-old, you know, being part of that awards and and getting the recognition that you did with Dream Job. But being in that pressure cooker where, you know, had you gone to small-town Iowa, you have some room to make mistakes and grow. In New York, you you don't really have that option. Your mistakes are under a microscope. Uh, did you? How did you handle that aspect of the job at that time in your life?
1: Not well.
0: <laughs>
1: um, no, you know the funny thing is uh, because you got to take yourself back to 2005. Um, I had a couple of markets like what you were just talking about that I was looking to go to. Um, one was El Paso. and and to be a weekend sports anchor with the idea of hopefully taking over. Um, A buddy of mine who is now a great sports anchor at uh, a CV station in in Minneapolis at the time was in Shreveport, and he told me there was going to be a job that was opening up there. So I was looking at a couple of markets like that, and the only reason that I came to New York, and this just happens to be right place, right time, and luck, and all that stuff, but the only reason I took the internet job was because my then-at-the-time girlfriend, now wife of more than 10 years, um was moving to new york and i'm like if i move to el paso if i move to shreveport it, it's not gonna work and uh and so i took the, the opportunity on this the internet tv thing i'm like who's gonna watch tv on the internet uh who cares right because i'm gonna get to go to new york and we're gonna see how this works and and i took that opportunity and it worked out really well um but i not well i didn't handle some of the stuff that happened uh that i wasn't ready for you know one of the things you learn. On the job isn't just about, and this is every job, but one of the things you learn in your first few jobs is just about managing your own responses, managing your own reactions, people skills, um, dealing with bosses, realizing that you're not in charge, um, handling different personalities. And, you know, when I moved here, the stuff with CBSSports.com was going really well, but it was still a really new entity. And I was getting the opportunity to play writer, producer, host, all of it. And about a year after moving to New York, I got a chance to uh, be the, one of the main anchors on MSG, one of the local cable channels here in New York City. And They do the Rangers, the Knicks, um, the Islanders. At, at the time, the Nets might have even been on there. And uh, they were starting this brand new show called MSGNY. And I'm 23 years old and I'm going to be on in New York. I'm no longer doing the internet stuff. I'm going to be anchoring this this new show, which is going to be sports and entertainment on MSG. And, you know, these are all these people who have been working their way up and they're producers who are in their 30s and 40s and the people who are running the network who have worked their way up to get to New York City. And, you know, here I'm this 23-year-old. And if you're a 23-year-old and you're working with all these people, you better be A, really good and B, really respectful. Um, and I had, to, I had to learn a little bit that, how you handle uh reaction or interactions with with uh, people who have their own opinions on how things should be done it it needs to be massaged uh and i and I did not do that well at twenty three twenty four and um took a couple of years to get that down but uh, it it was a great
0: learning experience to be honest do you have specific examples of uh situations that you didn't handle well yeah totally um we
1: it's a nightly show. It's a nightly hourly show.
0: And, uh, there, you
1: know, like every other show, it's got its own producer and it's got its own director and its own executive producer. And, um, they're like, Hey, we're going to do it this way. And I was constantly questioning, Hey, wouldn't that be better? Let's do it this way, this way, this way. Um, whereas, you know, as you go along and you have some more clout, you can also be like, Hey, let's do it this way. Or, Hey, what do you think about if this goes in front? And if you have some reasons for it, you can, you know, have a conversation. Whereas, you know, at the time I was just being like, why would we do it that way? Let's do it my way.
0: Um,
1: and, it was, you know, it's the wrong way to handle things.
0: You mentioned that some of the older employees maybe, I don't know if resentment's the right word, but looked at you with some skepticism. Did that bother you at that time? Do you have specific examples of that? Uh, I don't think I realized it at the time to be
1: perfectly honest, I didn't think about it, which is, which is part of the, which is part of the learning process. Um, you know, and I have, I have talked to different producers. I have talked to different executives who were with me at the time about really learning from that, growing from that, being a different person, um, change, changing from, you know, the guy that was a little bit, uh, confrontational because, um, had I known that going in, had I recognized it going in, had I even thought about it going in, I would have handled myself differently. It wasn't until it was all said and done, you know, and, and my contract didn't get renewed after uh after my first one, after about two and a half years in, that I realized that I just I just didn't handle myself well. And I was fighting against people who wanted me to succeed. Um but they but you know, but it has to be done the correct way. And it, it just, I just didn't, I just didn't do it well.
0: So you mentioned that your contract didn't get renewed and you had to have kind of a tough come to Jesus moment. What happened next after that happened? How did you bounce back? Uh, I
1: have basically changed career paths to be perfectly honest. Um, in, it, it, in, in the, in the realm of big picture, um, I at that point wasn't working at Westwood One, and I was doing some fill-in work on Sirius XM. And so, when when that happened, obviously, huge schedule opened up, huge financial aspect opened up, and Westwood One called and said, "Hey, look, uh, we liked how you did our uh, Olympic updates for the Olympics in Beijing. Are you interested in doing?" our studio hosting for uh, our college football and college basketball. And this is 2009. Uh, At that point, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to, right? I know Westwood one. I listen to Westwood one and and all the NFL broadcasts, tournament and all this. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to be your studio host for, uh, for college football and college basketball. And so it just kind of changed. I've kind of, I've become more of a, a guy who does everything And I'm excited about doing everything as opposed to the guy that was like, okay, you know, you know, I think big part of that, that learning process, especially when you get so many, so much, so much opportunity, so young is you don't get the opportunity. You don't realize exactly how, how much you have early. You don't realize or necessarily appreciate um, how great that opportunity is. And, I was looking more along the lines of, okay, I have this job. What's my next job? I have this job. What's it going to lead to? As opposed to, wow, I've got this job. Let's really enjoy it. And when that happened uh, with, with, with MSG and uh, then getting the opportunity for Westwood One, whole perspective changed. And I have really, ever since then, appreciated how awesome um, of a career that we, we get to have, we get the opportunity to do, uh, how awesome the events are that we get to cover. And I've really kind of enjoyed every
0: step of the way since then being the studio host is a it's a part of the craft that I've frankly never really been around as a play by play guy and a sales guy and a, a little bit of a talk show host, but I'd never been around you know the pre post game type of host, and being in that studio. Basically, sitting two rows behind you as you're going to work and kind of seeing all the moving parts uh, that are going on. I think that it would surprise people how complex your job is, especially at the beginning of it. When, I mean, going into it, it's kind of like, oh, he just takes it, he throws it to Kevin Kugler on the floor and just sits around and watches the game for a while. That's obviously uh, not the case. What just walk us through how What makes a great studio host and and what and how you learned how to do it effectively
1: yeah i I think first of all i'm constantly learning um, and a lot of a lot of other things that I'm doing have gone into play a role in becoming a better studio host, um, calling games. Uh, hosting my own radio show with Andy Staples on Sirius XM. Those things have all come into play uh, with each other because one of the things that you have to be able to do as a studio show host um, is be totally flexible and go off the cuff because just like anything else, you can have this plan and we can have this format and you can have, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to have this piece of sound and you're going to, talk to person X about why, um, but what if the tape doesn't fire? Or what if the interview that's supposed to be there doesn't show up? You need to go in a different direction. Or what if you're a studio host and you're, you guys are doing West Virginia, Tennessee to open the season, and there's an hour and a half lightning delay? <laughs> okay, like what? how are we going to cover it? That's not planned for Let's just go. And uh, that's that's kind of one of the ways that calling games and being a – Talk show hosts have really helped because my ability to ad lib and and just flow with whatever it is we're going to go with has really improved, and and I think that's the biggest aspect. You know, I think I think control is something that everyone's looking for. They they really want someone who feels like they're in control of the situation, no matter what that situation might be, whether it's studio host on Sports Center or you know, studio hosting on, on, on radio, getting set for the, for the final four, as long as you, cause you, cause there's always something that's going to be thrown at you, but as long as you appear to be in control and have some idea and some confidence about what it is you're doing and sound that way, nobody will ever know that what's going on behind the scenes might look like a duck's feet underwater and how fast it's going and, and how many things are changing on the fly. As long as you're in control, um, nobody will know. And, and, and I think that's the biggest thing. And, and being able to adjust and being able to be completely flexible uh, in, in how a show is going to go, I think that's the biggest thing to having a host. And then in, in reference to what you were saying about the, the role with Kevin Kugler in the Final Four, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Throw some sound, talk about some stuff, throw it to Kevin, and then watch the game. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it goes.
0: You mentioned the importance of being able to talk on the fly, but I was able to sit in the Westwood One production meeting at the Final Four, and how intricate and detailed the plan for the pregame show was, which was like two hours long. Probably that and the Super Bowl are the longest pregame shows that they do, I would guess, without oh, no question. for certain. No question. But they were planned down to the minute. They're like. uh, Jason and Jim Jackson are going to talk about this in this segment with this sound how much do you have to say about putting that plan together and how much of it is they the producers telling you what you're gonna talk about
1: um it's a mixture and that's and that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about um, developing a relationship uh, where they trust you to be able to go ahead and talk about you know that, that you have that they have the belief in you that you're going to take something in the right direction, and you know it takes time, right? It's it's a it's a it's a relationship of trust. It's a it's a are, is this better? Is this worse? Um, you know we have you, you said two hours, uh, and and most of that is the build up, right? There's interviews we do on Thursday to get ready for the final four, and Um, there's, there's production pieces we put together and, you know, the leading up to that production meeting, which was Friday before the final four, we were talking on Monday about, okay, what type of stuff should we get into? Um, what type of features should we run? What type of questions and and answers are we looking for from the players that we're going to talk to on Thursday and, and the coaching staffs? And, um, you know, those are conversations that go into the production meeting even well before Friday, because all those interviews are done. But uh at at the beginning, ten years ago, it was a lot of uh Jason, you're gonna talk about this and you're gonna ask about this. Um now it's a little bit more of, hey, what do you think we should do? And that's you know, that's all about relationship building and the understanding that uh every, everything's gonna be okay.
0: The first year you were working for Westwood One and you sat in that production meeting and it may not have been the same people, but at this one it was it was Kevin Kugler, John Thompson, Jim Gray, Howard Denneroff, just kind of a who's who of the business in a lot of ways. What was your reaction the first time you walked into that production meeting and you're like, wow, I'm here with with the best?
1: <laughs> so my first year working for Westwood One as as a, not just a one-off thing, but as, as the studios for college sports it was the 2009 college football season, but uh, it wasn't until the 2014 tournament that I got to be the host of the, of the tournament and, and, and the final four. And I remember, um, cause we live in New York city, which is where the studios are. I remember the the day of the tournament, the first Thursday of the 2014 tournament, it was a spring day, uh, or, or it felt like a spring day anyway. It was beautiful outside, 50 degrees, not raining, sunny skies, the whole shebang. And I I was listening, and the only reason I remember what song I was listening to is because it's part of my happy song list. I don't know if everyone's got a list of songs (laughs) they like, but for me, I call it my happy song list. And and the first song on the top of that list is uh, Stevie Wonder's For Once In My Life. Love that song. Makes me feel happy. It doesn't matter what's going on. You put that on, and I feel good about walking through the streets of New York every day. And uh, I remember walking to the studio, listening to that song, realizing that I'm about to be part of the actual broadcast for the NCAA tournament. You know, I'm not just covering it. I'm not going there to do whatever ancillary parts of the tournament and just talk about the tournament. I'm actually there to be on the broadcast of the tournament. And I skipped to work that day. Uh, I there there I am thirty year old Jason Horowitz in March two thousand fourteen, and I skipped from Sixtieth Street in Amsterdam all the way to Fifty Seventh in Amsterdam or tenth to to the broadcast center because I I I really felt like wow you know I'm 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 part of the tournament this is this is amazing and 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 that was the start of it there and then two thousand fourteen Final Four um, I had done some work with John before with coach Thompson before, because when you host the tournament, you host selection Sunday and he's part of that thing. And, you know, he's just a larger than life figure. He's what he did with college basketball. And, and being the first African-American coach to win a national championship, and, uh how people loved him and hated him all at the same time. And then I went to Syracuse. So you go to Syracuse, you hate Georgetown, but being in that room with this man who has all of that history and and people revere him for what he did. And you just, you just without meeting him, you just assume he's a mean guy because he's huge. <laughs> and he's nothing like it. He's funny. He's clever. Uh, he's quick-witted. And he's huge. <laughs> which, which, you know, you're sitting there, you're like, wow. He's kind of overtaken by his size and his stature. Um, and then you get to know him and you love him. Which is pretty cool.
0: And at that first one, did you also bring breakfast cereal to the production meeting? I did like not. You did, like you did. No, for that this was, one.
1: no. You caught me on a different. <laughs> you, you caught me. On. So, uh it was like three thirty in the afternoon. Our production meeting was three thirty in the afternoon. I had a uh, a late uh, breakfast on Friday, and uh, I, you know, I was we, we were going to go out for dinner afterwards, so I didn't want to have a whole a whole, uh, late lunch. I didn't want to have a, an early dinner. And so I was hungry and there was a Trader Joe's about two blocks away from our hotel where we were having our production meeting. And so I stopped to have some puffins and I just was like, well, I'm not going to leave them in my room. I kind of want some puffins. So I brought them for everybody. And did you not have some, you had some, right? I,
0: I did. I, I, I tried to, uh, resist for the probably first three times you asked. And I'm like, you know what? I'll have some puffins. <laughs>
1: Uh, you know what? It'll uh, two thousand nineteen Final Four production meeting will be ever be known forever be known as the Puffin meeting. Peanut butter puffins. <laughs> who doesn't want some peanut butter puffins? Oh uh, movie you gone. Know, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. Knowing me and my college roommates and, and, and friends and all that stuff that got via the human garbage disposal who would eat anything. I could have brought leftovers for everybody. But at least it was a brand new unopened box of puffins that I opened in the meeting. People should feel good about that.
0: You wouldn't have been invited on. You wouldn't have been invited on this podcast had you brought grape nuts.
1: <laughs> um, favorite cereal is not grape nuts, and it's not peanut butter Puffins. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, it is an undervalued cereal, to say the least. What is your favorite cereal? Oh, golden Grahams, hand down. <laughs> you get graham cracker and you get uh, cereal
0: and wrapped into one. It's by far the best cereal. I'm a Cinnamon Toast Crunch guy, but that's a solid choice.
1: So I like Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I do feel like my teeth are going to fall out, though, after I eat it. So you can't eat that every day. But Golden grams, it's not quite as much sugar that's just digging into your gums. Uh, So I feel better about that one.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is you've been part of the broadcast for – either as a host or doing updates or even doing figure skating play-by-play for several different Olympics. How many of them have you actually got to travel to?
1: Um just one. So I was doing I was doing updates for 2008, 10 and 12 with some studio stuff as well for our basketball coverage during the London Games and our hockey coverage during the Vancouver Games. Um, I went to Sochi. I was scheduled to go to Rio, um, but all in the span of a couple of months, my mom passed away, and then we found out my wife was pregnant with our second child. And if you remember back in June of two thousand sixteen, the biggest thing here, anyway, about Rio was Zika virus. And you know there's a whole big deal about whether or not the athletes were gonna go because the water was clean, um, you know what about if if you if you get you know bit by mosquitoes and you you know contract the Zika virus, how does that affect X Y or Z? And um, it was unknown, and so the combination of those two things and, and finding out my wife was pregnant with the second, we decided for, that I wasn't going to go, and so I backed out of doing the Olympics in Rio, and then for 2018 in uh, South Korea, Westwood decided that um, we would do a dual studio, one from New York. And then one from South Korea. And uh, it really worked. It really worked. Laura Oakland was there. I was here in the States. Um, and because of the wonderful technology of things like FaceTime, you would never have known that we weren't together. And uh, and the show worked really well. Wow. And and I was able to stay here and do some of the other things that I was doing as well. And um, hopefully Westwood gets the rights back for Tokyo. And uh, hopefully I get to go. But um, Olympics are a pretty cool thing. They're... I think over time, and maybe you feel differently, Logan, I, I think over time they, they seem to have lost their luster when people talk about um, how big of a deal they are. But then when we get to the actual two, three weeks of the Olympics, everybody gets lost in the Olympics. Everybody watches the Olympics. Everybody pays attention to the Olympics, no matter what other sporting events are going on. And, um, you know, it's it is still a – no matter what's going on in this country uh, and how people are split, they still get behind athletes who represent the country, uh, and there's this whole sense of nationalism with, with the Olympics. That part hasn't gone anywhere, and uh, and I think the Olympics still unify people, and that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that, This will be episode number 90 of the podcast, and my mom has recognized exactly two names – one was Greg Sharp because he's the voice of Nebraska, and she lives in Nebraska. The other one was Bob Costas, <laughs> only because everybody watches the Olympics, and he was the voice of the Olympics for so long. So that makes so long an awful lot of sense. Doing play-by-play for figure skating, how do you do it?
1: Very quietly and much uh, much slower than most other sports. <laughs> um, so we handled it on radio very similarly to the way that they do on TV in that your buildup is still the same. You're, you're, you're setting the scene. You're describing a little bit more, obviously, because nobody can see what's going on. Maybe the type of uh, outfit, the type of costume that's being worn, color of skates, uh, direction that they're heading, where on the ice they are. Um, but I also had Paul Wiley. Uh, who was a silver medalist in 1992. And, you know, when you're looking at the difference between a double-axle or a triple-axle and knowing exactly if it's under-rotated or over-rotated or, or the difference between that and a loop and a Lutz and a flip, um, your analyst can recognize that right away. Uh, there was no way I was going to do that. And so he still handles a lot of the stuff during the actual program, whether short program, long program. And then I handled the you know, adding a little bit more of description while the program was going on and just making sure you stick the outcome, you know, setting up the, the drama, building the drama that is the scores, the, is it going to be enough to get on the podium? Um, all of the same stuff that that Terry Gannon does such a wonderful job with on NBC, uh, with, with fig- his figure skating partners, right? Johnny, uh, 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 Terry Lipinski and Johnny Weir. Um, Terry is an amazing figure skating play-by-play guy, and 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 he builds the drama and hits the tones really, really well. And so, um, did radio for figure skating in 2014, and I've had the chance to do some other figure skating events for NBC over the past few years. And uh, it is it is one of those things where you have to change your energy level a little bit. One of the things that I've always been um, credited with one of the things that people associate me with is that I am constant energy. <laughs> um and, and, and hopefully more appropriate than it used to be. I think I think I used to be a little over the top, but figure skating is one of those where you tone down a little bit. And uh and it's it's a it's a it's a it's a different thing, but but if you can do figure skating, you can do any sport. Um because it is it's pretty nuanced.
0: What type of preparation do you do for a for a figure skating broadcast on the radio, all of the preparation you can possibly handle. <laughs> um,
1: what specifically I had, are
0: you looking? For? Are you I, watching I, lots of video. I overprepared or for
1: 2014. I overprepared because, um, which is great. I mean, that's a good thing. But, but I didn't know. I didn't know if I needed to know every every competition. That, that those skaters had been in throughout the course of the seasons, um, all of their histories, all of their country's histories, uh, all those things that at the moment, you know, again, figure skating is, is fairly uh, slow and there's plenty of time to find stuff within a program that, that you can look it up within within the program. But, um, you know, I, I was studying the Grand Prix events, which is a lot of the buildup to an Olympics the European championships, the U S championships, the Japanese championships, um, the Russian championships, like all of those just to, just to kind of be like, okay, this person has done this, this person has done this. So, so my background knowledge of figure skating in 2014, I I went to Sochi be like, wow, I, I can tell you every single person uh, who was in this event and, how well they have done all year and the reality is you don't end up calling all those people (laughs) you end up calling like the top 10 top 12 skaters because those are the only ones that really have a chance to earn a medal um the way figure skating works is that uh their programs are built to be more difficult and the ones the way the scoring works now the ones that are more difficult even if you don't Hit the landings, and even if you you don't skate it as well, you already started at such an advantage over the skaters who aren't attempting as difficult of jumps and and, and, and uh, elements of their program that uh, that they have no chance to earn a medal. So you end up only focusing on the last what turns amounts to be one or two groups in a figure skating event, which amounts to be six or ten people, and that's it.
0: So there's another Jason Horowitz out there. And I believe he works for, is it the New York Times and covers the Vatican?
1: I think it's the Washington Post. Washington but he Post. he has worked for the New York Times. He might have used to work for the Washington Post and now works for the New York Times. But I think it's the other way around. But yeah, he uh, uh, he is much more respected in terms of important news <laughs> coverage than I am,
0: without a doubt. Have you ever been confused for him in any situation?
1: Uh, Twitter. Many people... Are, well, the funny thing is neither of us are actually at Jason Horowitz. Um, I'm at Horowitz Jason, and I believe he's either at Jason D Horowitz or Jason... I believe he's at Jason D Horowitz. Uh, and I, I, once in a while, I'll, I'll get a, a a tweet that is, uh, hey, how do you feel about the Pope's decision on X? And... As someone who is Jewish, my usual response is, "I feel great about it." How do you feel about it? <laughs> uh, and uh, and I have forwarded him some thoughts uh, or some tweets to be like, "Hey, I think this is meant for you," and I'm sure he has gotten some that are sports related as well. And hopefully, he is actually a a sports fan, but I have no idea. And uh, we have we have kicked around the idea of getting him on on the show uh, on on ESPNU Radio on on Playbook. Uh, but we haven't been able to make that happen. But I'm guessing as we're heading into the off-season of college sports, uh, he, he's going to join us at some point.
0: That would be fantastic. I, you wonder if he ever gets a sports question asking about how the Cardinals are doing and thinks that he's talking about like the Conclave or something.
1: You know what? That's a really good point. That's that's going to be the first question I ask him when he hops on
0: <laughs> I, I ex- it.
1: Which, card, which Cardinals does he think they're talking about once he realizes it's sports? <laughs> Do he think it's St. Louis? Does he think it's Arizona? Does he think it's Ball State? And I wonder if he wonders which ones they're, they're talking
0: about. I want full credit when that question is eventually asked.
1: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Oh, no question.
0: I don't you get. Sir- get I don't get Sirius XM, so I won't be able to hear it. But I expect that uh, expect full royalties.
1: <laughs> you, I wish we gave Royals royalties for serious <laughs> XM. We don't even do podcasts.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that you have alluded to a little bit but we haven't got really gone in depth is you work with a lot of different analysts and a lot of different people in a lot of different roles where you know maybe Kevin Kugler has to work with two or three people you're working with Kugler and Thompson and Gray and Bill Walton and pretty much everybody involved at any point meshing with so many different people seamlessly Is that something you developed or something you've always just been able to do? Um, Both. And and, and I know that's kind of like a cop out.
1: But um, my mom was a high school guidance counselor. And um, relationship building, again, even though if you go back 20 or 30 minutes when we were talking about this, wasn't necessarily my strength in the professional world right when I got out of college, it is certainly something that I understood growing up and it's certainly something that's a strength now. Um, It is a important and B it's something I pride myself on. Um, You know, a couple of years ago, Danny Cannell was my, was my everyday partner on the radio show before he switched to a different uh, network. And then, you know, for the last nine months, it's been Andy Staples, but everything other than that, um, you know, I was the main host of Playbook and I would have four or five different co-hosts in any given week. And they were all great and they were all fun to work with and, um, you know, all very different. And so getting the opportunity, getting the, uh, getting the opportunity to work with different people every day and still make a show work, made me realize that I could make that work with anybody. And one of the things that I pride myself on both on the TV side and the radio side is that they can pair me with any crew and they can pair me with any partner and it's going to go well because one of the things that I learned at an early age, um, from, from and Eagle, um, and something I've talked a lot with one of my college roommates and one of my best friends, Jason Bonetti, who's the TV voice of the White Sox is, Play by play, we all grow up thinking it's about us. You know, before you get into this business, you grow up, you want to be a play by play, you have these great visions of this great call, and you're, you're the greatest play by play guys, you think about how they had a home run call. For me, it was Ernie Harwell and his long gone call, because that was who I grew up with with the Pistons, or, the, or excuse me, the Tigers, and the voice of the Pistons, George Blaha, and, and how he called things. But the reality is, a play-by-play guy can be great, but his, one of his best attributes has to be making his analyst great, and making the team great, and making the broadcast great. And if you're not supporting your producer and what they're putting on the monitor, uh, and you're not supporting your director and what pictures they're actually showing, you can sound great, but the product you're going to put out there isn't great. And you know, I think that takes some time to learn, um, but but all of this is a team effort. We are, we are certainly not solo in any of this. And, um, you know, that's one of those things that's really, that takes a little bit of time to get used to. Cause when you come out of, when you come out of college or when you get that first job, you think it's all about you and you think it's about how you focus on your job, knowing what your job is, making sure that you have a clean broadcast, you say the right thing at the right time. You have a great call and a big moment and all those things are important, but you working with your teammates and making it a great broadcast for everyone um is just as important and particularly in TV because you've got pictures and you've got graphics and you've got video to to make sure that all of it doesn't come out of left field and and it and it and it all works together
0: when you have a college roommate my freshman year college roommate is still a very good friend of mine but when you are living with somebody outside of home for probably the first time there's a lot of good stories and one or two things that annoys you. What are what was the one or two things that annoyed you as college roommates with Jason Bonetti? Uh, he was an absolute slob. He uh <laughs> if, he so we we didn't become roommates
1: till junior year of, of college. Um, and we lived in a house with it was me and him and four other guys. And every, you know, look, I grew up with the parents that like things to be in place, um, things to be put away. Uh, you come in, your shoes go in the closet, your jacket gets hung up. And I was, I was good at that. My brother was not. And you go to college and you learn that people have their own intricacies. If you, If you were to go into his bedroom in college you would have thought that every piece of clothing he had was on the floor and that you were stepping <laughs> over a mountain of khaki pants and cargo jeans to get to any other part in his room. <laughs> and for some reason, and I really am not sure how or why this happened, he probably had $30 worth of change at any given moment lying on the floor. And like, <laughs> you, if like you have change, like people leave it in their pants pockets and, they put it on their desk. Maybe they don't have a, like, a little little change box or a little bag that they put change in. I don't know how people keep their change. Um, but he somehow managed to accumulate more change in his room than the, the local HSBC bank. I have no idea how it happened, but it was always there. And so uh, now he was um, I say this about Jason and to your, your point about learning things about people he is probably the hardest worker I've ever been around. He, uh, he, and and that's at a lot of different things, but particularly at his craft, um, you could tell, you could tell from an early, an early stage of our friendship, but particularly of living together that he was going to make it. Um, and you didn't know if it was going to be in TV, if it was going to be in radio, whatever it was, but you couple his voice, his ability to draw people into him personally, and um his work ethic of wanting it to be better, wanting it to be as good as possible um you could tell he was gonna be great, and he is
0: if we flipped that the other way, what would he say was annoying about you? my eating habits remember too, you too what, many puffins remember what
1: you talked, yeah, I remember what you talked about uh about bringing cereal to the uh to the Westwood one final Four production meeting um <laughs> they would tell you that I brought food from home and never shared it with anybody and that I am the loudest
0: chewer on the face of the earth. All of those things are accurate. (laughs) So you kind of pulled, and you you mentioned this earlier, you changed the trajectory of your career. You initially, if I understand things correctly, wanted to go into play-by-play, and you still are doing play-by-play. It's part of what you do, but the main... Uh, emphasis of your career is into the hosting and the the talk show at this point is that what you want or do you would you like to pivot that the other direction in the future what no. are your long term so, goals so so i i actually it was the other way around so i i wanted to be a studio host
1: um i wanted to be the great tv studio host um and and what has happened and and i kind of like it this way But what has happened is that I have become a radio studio host who also then calls games on TV. Um, And one of the things that I've always prided myself on, and and, and now particularly, is that I can do anything. Um, I can handle anything. And whether that's figure skating on radio or, for that matter, on TV, um, calling football, calling basketball, which we all want to do. Um, or handling the the absolute madness of the NCAA tournament on Westwood one, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I can handle anything. And, um, you know, what I've pivoted my career to do now is I kind of want to be the person who's doing everything. Um, and, and and honestly, part of that, Logan, is, is, you know, I think one of the things that gets lost in all this is because we're looked at as the events we're calling and the games we're doing. But one of the things that I, in part of my everything which is different for, for, for everyone personally, but part of my everything includes my family. And um, one of the reasons I have never to this point chased a full-time play by play gig is because I've never been able to, I've never been able to bring myself to be the person who's on the road 150 to 200 days a year. Um, I have, I have too much of a hard time with that. I, uh, I've never, I've never felt good about it. And that's one of the things that constantly pulls at me is because I want to be calling big events. I want to be doing play-by-play of, of big-time games. But I also want to be home with my kids. Um, and I haven't been able to figure out yet the balance of that. That's, that's the one thing that eats at me every single year of, okay, this was great. This event was awesome. Um, calling this game was, was a lot of fun. What do I want to try and do next year? And the thing that I always come back to is um, I want to be at my daughter's dance recital. Um, you know, my son's only two, but he's going to have things too. And, uh, and I don't know how I'm going to handle that. Uh, I, I don't know what direction I'm going to go with because um, I've, I've always struggled as I'm sure a lot of, it's not just play by play people or people in the sports industry, but I'm sure a lot of people in every industry struggle with, they want to be great at work but they also want to be a great mom or a great dad. And, um, and I want to be both of those things and they don't always work together. So I'm not really sure how that's going to go,
0: but, uh, that that's kind of always been my struggle. How often do you say no to assignments for those reasons?
1: More now, not, not as much as I'd like still. Um, you know, it's part of that is the, is the thought that I can do anything. I can go call anything and you know, when someone's like, hey, do you want to try this new sport? It's called grid. And I'm like, what the heck is grid? And they're like, yeah, we'll figure it out as we go along.
0: <laughs> is that um, a real thing? Is it why? Is that a real thing or did you just make that up? Is there actually a no, thing a called thing. grid? Oh,
1: absolutely. I, yeah, it was a real sport.
0: What is um, grid? It was,
1: a, it was, a, it was a, a combination. So people who who started grid had come from CrossFit games and they were starting a brand new sport. Uh, the sport was called Grid. And it was teams of these amazing athletes who were like CrossFit athletes. And the sport developed into the, in the second year or the third year, I should say uh, into something a little bit different, but it was these amazing athletes who, who were competing on the, uh, on a, on a playing, we'll call it a playing field. That's the size of a basketball court. And it was split into two halves. And there were different elements to every race that both teams were trying to compete and you're tagging people in and out. And let's say, Let's say one of the elements was you had to do uh, 50, um, 50 uh, dumbbell overheads at 150 pounds. Uh, you know, let's say your person, you, the first person that uh, did 10 and you go and tag in someone else, and they did 10 and then they, it was all strategy because everybody on your team was, was, is eligible to do any a moment, but the only thing that matters is you complete every rep and you beat the team that you're competing against. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, It was great. My analyst uh, was Chris Doring from the SEC Network and uh, a guy who actually we had worked together because he was one of our analysts on Western One. He was one of our college football game analysts. So I knew him and and we had a great time doing it. But, um, you know, that's one of those things that is like I said yes to do what? (laughs) And it was fun. It was really fun. And it was four or five years ago. Um, I don't know that I would say yes to it now. You know, at that point, I only had one, one kid and and she was nine months old. And, um, now that she's five and a half and he's two and a half, uh, I don't know that I'd say yes to that now, but, um, you know, but the other part to that, which we were just getting at is you, you want to be part of these big moments, these big things. Um, you also want to take advantage and look for new things, you know, be part on the cutting edge of stuff and see what it's all about. Um, so the answer to your question of, do I say yes? Do I say no? I, 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 in my heart, I'd like to say no more often than I actually do. But then you also have the fear of missing out. And I don't want that either.
0: We're going to wrap things up pretty quick because it is getting late and you're using your family time that we we're just talking about to nah, talk to me both for sleep.
1: You were good enough to, you were good enough to wait till they both went to bed tonight. <laughs>
0: Um, but we'll finish things up nonetheless because I need to go to bed. I have a seven a.m. dentist appointment tomorrow, so I was trying to put the blame on you, and and you wouldn't take it. But um, one of the things I ask everybody about is their broadcast horror stories from their career, and that's just a, a time where you're on the air where everything goes wrong, either. Uh, with equipment, with location, with something just weird and random and crazy, everybody has those stories, and I like to ask, "What is yours?"
1: Mine was during Dream Job, actually, um, which is ironic because uh, it's it it was a game show, it was a reality show where they were intentionally trying to screw things up because. They want to see who can handle it, right, and do it better and and it, you know it's a reality show where they know things are going to go wrong, and you don't. but one time the prompter goes out, right and that happens I've had that happen since then, and the show that I actually got eliminated on, I just it wasn't even anything that they did. it was something that I did which was I, they handed me a shot sheet, which is a piece of paper that has the uh, order of highlights. And it tells you what's on the highlights and uh, how long they're going to be and uh, who the people are in the highlight and uh, what's going to go next. And I just misplaced it. I had no idea where it was. It was under some other papers and could not find it. Uh, but uh, when, when that happened, I had a massive panic. Right. Whereas now, you lose your shot sheet. You just just look down and you look at the highlights and you realize, uh, you know what? Everybody can see what you're looking at. Just take it, and if you're wrong, so be it. Or make a joke about losing your shot sheet because uh, you know everyone finds humor funny, right? So, uh, it's a different level. But that was my panic moment. Um, my my panic moment happened before my career even started, and I think that's a good thing. Um, because, you know, I've had moments since then where I have no idea where we're going. Uh, it happened today it, during our radio show today, I had teased something, uh, going into a break that we were going to talk about. And, uh, we're, we're going to talk about the, we're going to talk about the SEC's, uh, dominance and, uh, the amount of SEC players that got drafted. And what does that mean? And we came out of the break and I had a massive brain fart. I had no idea where we were going to go. And I just said it. It just just came out of my mouth. I'm like, you know what? Um, I I have no idea what we're going to talk about right now. It, you, I had said something, and I know you're waiting for it in three and a half minutes of a break. You hung on, and you're expecting us to talk about it. But i got to be honest. I have no idea what I told you we were going to talk about. Um, and 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And uh, so I, I – I, you know it's funny, Logan? I, I, I – I tried to push back against the dream job thing when I first got into the business because I didn't want to be thought of as the dream job guy who got his start because of dream job. And the reality is, and we talked about this at the beginning, the opportunity that I had because of it to to be at that Hearst Foundation Awards and meet Larry Kramer and get the first job that I ever did and, and make everything go because of it, it was the biggest opportunity that I could have ever asked for. And at the same time, screwing up on a national TV stage when I was in college turned out to be a great thing because nothing, nothing else is going to go wrong uh, other than just not knowing what you're supposed to do. But as long as you talk through it and even be honest with people, being like, hey, I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we're going to do this and we're going to get to it at some point. Um, everything will be fine. Because to be honest. We all love what we're doing, and these are all massive events, and we're judged on how we handle them. But at the end of the day, they're still just sporting events, right? They're still just broadcasts. And there's a lot of money riding on it, and there's a lot of pressure on all that stuff, but they're supposed to be fun. And and they're supposed to be sports, and they're supposed to be things we all grew up rooting for and enjoying. And so hopefully they are enjoyable. There's nothing that's that big of a deal.
0: When you were eliminated from Dream Job, I read about this. I don't remember exactly. I think you were. You made a pretty good run. Were you third or second? Uh, I made it into the final four. Yep. What? How disappointing was it at that point when you were eliminated? Oh, I bawled my eyes out.
1: <laughs> uh, and not because I had been eliminated.
0: My um, my
1: mom and my aunt had flown to New York city where we were doing the taping and they brought my grandfather with them. And I got eliminated in front of my grandfather and my family. And I kind of felt like I had let them down. And, uh, so I remember just absolutely bawling when it was all done, not on camera. Um, but afterwards, I'm sure that now that I think about it, I'm sure they caught it on camera and probably aired it the next week because everything's on camera on a reality show. But, uh, yeah, I just, I, I felt, um, I felt very disappointed because I cause I thought I I thought I was going to win,
0: you know, um,
1: but it all worked out.
0: Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to when you have a night off and just have the radio on in the background when you're washing the dishes?
1: <laughs> My favorite radio play-by-play guys, both. Um, not to not to suck up to him because, uh, not that he needs any more people talking about him, but, uh, Kevin Kugler is truly a great radio voice. Um, and I don't think he gets enough credit. He, um, he does a great job with Sunday night football. He does a great job with the NCAA tournament with Westwood one. And, uh, he is probably one of the more undervalued play-by-play guys in our industry and I say that realizing that he's the number one play-by-play voice on TV at BTN, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, and obviously how much his value is to Western one. I just don't know, know that everyone nationally knows about, him. you know, your, your, your national voices. When you, when you think about at least TV wise um, play-by-play, a lot of people go to the number ones at the big networks, right? They go to, they go to Nance, they go to um, Joe Buck, right? They go to Al Michaels, Mike Tarico. Uh, I and Eagle, Kevin Harlan, you know, a lot of people, now Marv's getting a little bit older, but you go to Marv Albert. Um, I don't want to leave anybody out in that realm, but you know, they, those are the big names you constantly hear. Kevin's not thrown into those. And he, he is an absolute, uh, an absolutely dynamic play-by-play guy that can handle anything. You know, he, he, we talked about me calling figure skating at the Olympics, at the winter Olympics. He calls uh, speed skating. You know, he can transition to calling speed skating on radio um, and golf and all these other things, too. So I think I think Kevin is one of those guys that, that at some point will hopefully get his credit uh, of, of how good he actually is.
0: How would somebody reach out to you if they wanted to do so? Uh, you could follow me on Twitter at Horror with And uh, my guess is I am probably in white pages. So find my address and send me a letter. <laughs> who, has, who has the actual Jason Horowitz Twitter that you and the other one don't have? Somebody who's not verified. You know, that's somebody else we should probably get on our radio show
1: at some point. Find out who that guy is and what he does. I don't know who it is. I have no idea who it is.
0: Oh, man. Okay. Well, once again, thanks for coming on, Jason. Appreciate it, Logan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Say The Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the very top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.